ask for your forgiveness when we, we look for trivial, superficial things on earth to help us in our darkest, deepest needs as if these things were worthy to replace and to fill the hole in our heart that only you can. Father, our minds are still lacking in some areas. And you know, we know that you are growing us. Help us to be patient. Help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of your son, Jesus. And thank you for what you've done for us all through your love. Even when we didn't love you, thank you. We pray this all in the great name, wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, you may be seated. It's good to see everyone. Maybe you're new here. Maybe you're visiting. We are Summit Church. I want to say a little bit about our name. The name Summit. Idea of a mountain with a peak that you are looking at. Now imagine you're walking to it. We want even in our name to be a reminder that we are leaving the world behind us and we are going to something greater. We want our name to be something that reminds us that when we are experiencing life here on planet Earth, there's a perspective and there's beliefs and there's thoughts and there's an experience of life that may seem a certain way, but when we take our eyes off earthly things and we put them on heavenly things, we begin to see the way, the way things really are. We begin to see what truly is valuable. We begin to see what God is really doing in our life. And as we're going through the book of James and we're talking about hardship and hard times of life, I'll tell you what, keeping your eyes on the summit and seeing the hardship of your life through the perspective in the eyes of God is something that is powerful. Because only a believer, only someone who has been saved by Jesus and has the hope of a living hope and a God who's so powerful, he can take every miserable experience and turn it upside down and use it for your good and for his glory and for your growth and then use that to help others. I think of the story of Joseph. Think about what he went through in his whole life. Why would God allow one of his children to go through the things that Joseph did? If you don't know who Joseph is, he's this, this uh, Jew way, 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 way long ago who was literally sold into slavery from his brothers, completely abandoned. And everywhere he went, he was upright and innocent and blameless, but he kept always getting the short end of the stick, wound it up in prison. All of these things leading Joseph to a place where he would eventually get to show people that he can interpret dreams and God put him in the right place where he was able to even interpret the dream of the Pharaoh and what happened through the interpretation. He was able to save not only Egypt, but all the surrounding nations from a drought that was coming. And at the end of his life, he was able to look back when he got to meet his brothers who sold him into slavery for the first time in many, many years and say, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And this theme has been carried throughout all of scripture. When we come to the book of James in the New Testament, here we are as Christians on planet earth, still experiencing hardship, still, still experiencing huge question marks over our head as we say, God, what is going on? What are you doing? And we open up his word and we see countless, countless, countless story after story after story of God showing what he's doing and how he won't waste a single ounce of pain in your life. So beautiful. But I think about living life not knowing God. I think about living on planet earth, having nothing but a big question mark, having no idea what life is about and where we come from, how miserable that would be and how painful trials would be where there's no hope and no good news in anything bad that we go through, just misery. Hey, maybe that's you. Maybe you're listening. Maybe that's you. I'm going to tell you, there is, there is a living hope. There is a, a man named Jesus who 
was born into this world and who lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for us and for our sins and he made a way for us to be connected to God and he has given us an inheritance that's kept in heaven, undefiled, imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for those who believe and by God's power it is being guarded through faith, Peter tells us. So we come to the book of James, we talk about real faith. We see why this book is so important because if faith is the thing that bridges us from being lost in the desert to being found and being refreshed, being adopted, being promised eternal life. If faith is what bridges that, it's very important to understand, to know, and to test our own selves and our own hearts to make sure that our faith is actually real. Because Jesus comes along and he says, man, there's going to be a lot of people who think their faith is real, but it's not. And if we would judge ourselves now, test ourselves now, let the spirit work Do some of the uncomfortable self-reflection and introspection. Maybe one of us would come to know, you know what? I have been living a lie. I have been deceived this whole time. I have associated with Christians. I've associated with the church. I've, I've associated and been near and thought that I was good with the creator who made me because of my nearness to his people. But I've come to know that I have never repented And I believe that Jesus does not know me because I've never had a personal relationship with him. The scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe it's time for a personal, personal self-reflection where you call out to Jesus in full dependency saying, I cannot do this without you. Please forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross. You rose from the dead. You did this to show show your love for me and to save me. Would you please save me? And the Bible says he will absolutely 100% save you. And the rest of your life is living, growing in that relationship with Jesus. We come to the book of James, and James is trying to help us look into our heart and help us to see, is our faith real? So what have we talked about so far? We've been talking about this theme of when life hurts and how, how amazing hardships and trials are in life because they actually help us validate the genuineness of our faith. Because a fake Christian will not endure through all the hardship. They'll eventually give up. Eventually give up. Let me, let me recap really quick. And you'll see it up on the screen. I've tried to put it in the most simplest sentence I can about what we've learned so far. Trials are given and allowed by God to grow us. His desire is a heart that is wholly devoted to him, not double Minded. Now, I want us to look at James chapter one. I'm going to read through the first few verses as we connect to what we're going to get in today and I want to bring us some further clarification. Verse two, James is, verse one tells us that he's writing to the church that is dispersed, that's the persecuted church. These, these churches and these Christians are scattered about and many of them have, are suffering persecution, have lost their homes. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. 
as we bridge the gap between what we've already heard to what we've heard today, I want to, I want to give like this overview. I want to give you a clear picture. And I even want to bring further clarification that we're double-minded and the perfect completeness that we must have, that double-mindedness prevents us from. I want to give you an example of what that looks like. As I was thinking about wisdom and asking for wisdom, I studied uh, the life of Solomon this week. And the beautiful story of when Solomon asked for wisdom, God gives it to him. You see this, God's even like, thank you for asking for wisdom and not for riches. But what do you see happen throughout the life of Solomon? You see him being charged, being, being in charge of building the temple. You see he's, he's accumulating riches and all of these things. And, and throughout the story of Solomon's life, he's, he's constantly praying to God and he's interceding on behalf of the people and his heart is turned to God. But you come to the section uh, in Solomon's life where, where things have kind of gone on and the temple's being built and it's getting towards the end of his life. And God throughout his life is constantly reminding you, but if you turn your heart away from me to serve other gods then you'll lose the blessing. Comes to Solomon towards the end of his life and it says this about him. His heart was not wholly devoted to God because his heart turned after the many wives that he accumulated for himself. Went and did the things that God said not to do and it it came to find out that his heart was drawn away from God, being fully 100% devoted to God and drawn away. This is the picture of what James is saying. Trials are bringing, coming in to take the heart and give it wholly to God to grow us, be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. To be Christ-like is to be like Jesus, which is to wholly depend on God and be totally satisfied in him. And God is trying to weed out the double-mindedness, the, the, the other loyalties in our life where we serve multiple gods. And we give allegiance over here to this thing, and then we come over here and we say, God, but then we're still, we're still loving this. God's trying to weed that out. Uh-uh. I want all of you. All of you. That song we sing, my, all of my delight is in you. We sing that. We know that's true. But is it true for you? If it's not, God wants it to be, and he's going to do what he can in his life to weed out anything that makes him not number one in your life. Holy, devoted to God. What is the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what God's trying to do for every single one of us is get what he wants. He shows us what he did for us in Jesus, wholly devoted to us and wholeness and completely giving us all of him, his only son, all of it. So that when we turn to him, we would give him all of us. This is a process. It doesn't happen overnight, but we count it all joy when trials come in because God is getting rid of the false loyalties in our life to get to, to work a heart that will be wholly devoted to him. Now, let me read the next section the next few verses, and I want you to pay attention because in, when I initially read it, it's going to sound like uh, uh, he's jumping ship here. He's just totally going on a different uh, rabbit trail, and this isn't connected, but it absolutely is. I'm going to explain why. So look what he says here in verse 9 of chapter 1. He then says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also where the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. Okay, okay, how do, how do we go from talking about trials and asking for wisdom and life being hurting? And then he's automatically going to talk about poor people and rich people. That can't be connected. He's changing thoughts. Well, look at verse 12. 
You can see that he's still talking about trials. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. He's still talking about when life hurts and trials. But think about being double-minded. Think about having different loyalties. Think about other scriptures. Didn't Jesus say you cannot serve both God and money? You can't serve two masters because you'll end up hating one and loving the other. It is very appropriate now for James to go and talk about this as he's talked about what it means to be double-minded and not being tossed to and fro. Anything in life that's going to pull you away from being devoted to God, and one of the number one things that'll pull you away from being devoted to God is worldly possessions and riches. James is going to show how real faith flips status on planet earth. To be a Christian have real faith manifested within you is going to change the way you look at poverty and riches. We're going to see this upside down status happen. Real life hurts. When life hurts, real faith flips the script on poverty and riches. So here's the big question we're going to ask today. The big question is this. How does real faith change the way the poor and rich Christian respond to trials? Now, before I answer the question, I'm going to put the answer up on the screen. Immediately, you're probably thinking, well, who's poor, who's rich? When we read here, there was a clear divide between who was poor and who was rich, who was a lowly brother or sister, who was, who was, who was less fortunate, as we would say today, versus who was fortunate. We live in a time where that, that line is so grayed and blurred. I think it would be important for us to pay attention to both Categories because we both find ourselves in areas of lowliness, less fortunateness, uh, and poorness and riches in the world, material possessions. So I think as we go into this sermon, let's not spend too much time trying to figure out well, which one am I, and let's listen to the exhortation to both. How does real faith change the way the poor and rich Christian respond to trials? Here's the answer. Real faith keeps the poor and the rich Christians boast in their heavenly status, not their earthly status. Let's be honest real quick. And when I, I was thinking about the word honest and when you're being honest about things, you know, sometimes honesty is not always helpful. Honesty is always honest. It's always the truth, but it's not always helpful. Let me give you an example. Honesty about someone, you know, you could go up to someone and say, you know, every time you eat, it reminds me of a squirrel trying to solve a Rubik's Cube. Very honest, but is that helpful? There's hurt involved in that, but it doesn't go past just hurting. It just hurts. That's, you know, keep that honesty to yourself. When we open up scripture, we see nothing but honesty. And you know, a lot of pain and a lot of, a, a lot of conviction and even offense can come with honesty as the scripture and God's truth is confronting us. But the one thing about the honesty of God's word is it's always helpful, always edifying. And I know this, we're just gonna be honest. Talking about money always makes us uncomfortable, right? Because we all feel the pull in our heart. We all are tempted to put our trust and worldly things and money and thinking that money and things and material possession can solve the problems of the world and our experiences. We, it's like we know that's not true, but our heart still just goes after it and we des- desperately want it, do we not? So let's talk about it. 
how real faith, I want to show you how real faith turns poverty and riches upside down, according to the book of James. Look at this first one. The poor Christian boasts in their future exaltation. So you're in a situation where your experience on planet earth might fall in the poor category, maybe according to uh, uh, some stat or you fall on some scale where technically in the society you're in, you may be poor or less fortunate. He uses the word here in the ESV, lowly. It doesn't just pertain to money. You can be poor in health. You can be poor financially. You can be poor in many areas of your life. Poor, lowly, not, not known, hidden, right? Unimportant in the world's eye, insignificant, weak. Think like that. But James is really highlighting money. He's really highlighting socioeconomic status because the rest of the book, he's going to keep bringing this up. Real faith in the heart of a Christian who may be poor, what it does is it causes them to keep their eyes on their future exaltation and not on what they're going on and not what they're going through now. Let me, let me explain. The poor experience current pain, inconvenience, lack of leisure, discomfort, hardship, and inconvenience that otherwise money could buy. This allows them to more easily, listen, this allows them to more easily anticipate a better day and long for it, heaven. In the kingdom of God, it is more advantageous and desire to be worldly poor. They are the rich ones in the kingdom of God. Let me read you some verses. James chapter two, James says this in verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? The book of Psalms, it says this, the poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Job 29 says this, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. Proverbs 22, 16, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gifts to the rich will only come to poverty. Proverbs 21, 13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Jesus said in the New Testament, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. This word poor, lowly, goes far beyond just money status. Many areas of life where you may experience being poor, lowly. God's eye is on those people. But those people have an advantage. The advantage is this. They're able to accurately see who they really are. Because that's all of us. And they have a clear example and nothing in the way that's holding them back from seeing their circumstance. They know that they need help. And so they're more ripe and ready to call out for help when God shows up. What happened when Jesus showed up on planet earth? He said, the well don't need a doctor, the sick do. Was he saying that there are well people in the world and sick people in the world and he doesn't need to go to the well? No, everyone's sick, but there's a lot of people who think that they're not sick and they don't receive help because their hearts aren't ready to because they have so many things on planet earth that distract them from seeing that this life isn't where satisfaction is. And so they don't turn to Jesus because like, I don't need him. Think about the Pharisee that invited Jesus into his home and you had the woman who came and invaded their space because she was crying at his feet, wiping her tears and her hair on Jesus' feet to clean it. And she's just crying. And Simon, the Pharisee who invited him in, 
says, why are you letting him, basically thinks to himself, why are you letting him do that? And Jesus reveals at the end, he's like, look, look at her actions. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. She understands the pit that she's been pulled out of. But you love little. Your actions prove that you love me little because you don't believe you need to be forgiven much. What prevents a mind from seeing the true current spiritual condition that we all are actually in? One of the greatest blinders to us seeing our need for Jesus is finding everything we want in the world, at least we think we want. The poor are at an advantage. In the kingdom of God, the status is flipped. And so here's what he's saying. James is saying to the poor, hey, listen, you go through trials. You're lacking the comfort. Many of these Christians have lost their home and now they have nothing. They're in hiding. Some of them in the church wouldn't have been in that situation. Some of them would. So here's the encouragement he gives to them. Passing the test means this, keeping your eyes on the riches that are waiting for you and the status of being a child of God. He says, let the lowly brother exalt or boast in his exaltation. James talks about humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God and that suffering is for a little while, but at the right time, God will exalt us. Basically saying, don't take matters into your own hand. Don't fight against it. God's going to do this for you. He's going to exalt you. I think about Paul when he's writing to the Corinthians and Paul is, is being judged by them and he's being spoken of very wickedly and wrongly by them. And here's what he says. He says, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He understood that according to the world, his status was scum. But he knew what his status in heaven truly was. And so he wasn't living for this world. He was trying to help save this world. But he knew one day, one day his exaltation was coming and he was putting that in the hands of God. And he was happy with being considered a fool in the world's eyes. Crazy. If it meant gaining eternal riches. The psalmist says at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is the fullness of joy at right hand are pleasures forevermore. Isn't that what we're trying to find on earth? But never can find Yeah, that's because it's at the right hand of the Father. Those who have real faith, that are in a poor, lowly state and status of life, they keep their eyes on their future exaltation. Now, what's the temptation for the poor? Here's the temptation. The temptation is to envy the rich and despise their current status. That's the temptation. And James is actually going to start talking about temptation a little bit later. But the poor needs to remember, no, no, count it all joy. You're going through this trial. Let the trial constantly remind you of why I've given to you what I'm trying to do. You're in a state where you it's easy for you to see how much you need me. You know, when I worked at the rescue mission, it broke my heart all the time to see some of the condition that these men and women were in, whether it was by hard circumstances or their own doings. Either way, horribly, horribly sad to see people homeless, addicted, struggling. But the one thing they didn't struggle with is when they heard the gospel tears rolling down their eyes on their cheek face saying, I need that. And I want that. Please let it be true. Never struggled with it. How much do we struggle to let tears run down our face and see our great need for Jesus every single day of our life? How much do we struggle because we have such comfort and leisure, so many things to distract us from the darkness and the pit of calamity that we're actually in. That's why 
Jesus comes along and he gives you real faith. And he, that's why you can count it all joy when you're in a poor, lowly status because you see every trial coming to you as an advantage. Like, man, I'm able to see how good the future's gonna be for me. And I have no problem not loving the world now because my experience in the world is it ain't gonna be found here. That's a good place to be. Now look what he says next. The lowly brother boasts in his exaltation, but the rich Christian boasts in their present humiliation. The rich in his humiliation, James says, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Peter says the same thing. All flesh is like grass. It fades away. James is actually thinking about the book of Isaiah when he's quoting this, talking about this. He says the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. And he gives this picture. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. The rich experience current comfort. Money affords them. Money can afford them. And a false sense of security. This makes it really hard for them to see and even want a better day. God makes sure his rich children experience trials that remind them of the worthlessness of worldly passions to help and satisfy their hearts in the way that only he can. In the kingdom of God, it is more of a disadvantage and to be less desired to be worldly rich. They are the poor ones. How do I know this? How do I know this? Well, Jesus is the one who teaches us that it is really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven because they have so much that's distracting them. One of the soils that was not a real good soil was the soil that had thorns that came up and choked it out. Riches, worldly riches are like thorns that choke out our devotion to God and so pull us away from having a heart wholly devoted to him. Now, let me say this. Money is not evil possessions are not evil. All of these things we're going to learn in the book of James are good gifts that come down from the father of lights. What's the problem? The problem is our hearts are evil. Our hearts are bad. And we, that's what we don't want to deal with. That's what we don't want to face. And if we're not careful, we will allow these things that may legitimately be good things that God's given us to actually turn our hearts away from him. That's what he warned the people in the wilderness. He says, listen, when you go into the land and you start building houses, Life starts getting better for you. Beware lest you forget me. And that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. This is why we need trials. We need them. We are unable on our own, on our own, to seek God in a wholly devoted way. We will never do that on our own. This is why God is always intervening for us. And one of the ways he intervenes and he, and he, he puts the roadblock there and he turns our eyes back to him as he allows us to experience trials. Hardship, constantly reminding us of how much we need him, how much we need him. So the exhortation to the rich is to boast in their present humiliation. What does he mean by that? Think about it like this. Think about someone who's maybe has a lot of money in the stock, stock market crashes and they like may lose all their investments. How many stories have you heard of people like jumping out of windows at that moment? How many times have you heard people like going into a a mind of despondency and panic mode, taking their own lives and freaking out because for them, they lost their God, their hope, all of that. For the Christian, 
Who has money? For the Christian who's worldly well off, not, it's not bad. But the one who has real faith, when those things happen, as, 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 as much as they hurt, that person in their heart knows, like, no, this is God reminding me that this that I've just lost was never going to help in the first place. It's not going to satisfy me. It's not what I need. And so what, it did, what does it do? It turns their, their eyes to heaven and they remember who they are in God and they, they cry out to him and they ask for help and dependency. And God's constantly turning both brothers and sisters' hearts to him regardless of the circumstance that we're in. It just manifests itself. So the rich flip. You know what? In the kingdom, I might be worldly successful and have all of these worldly riches, but that puts me at a disadvantage in the kingdom because I need to know myself. I need to know that because of these things, my heart's going to always be tempted to turn away and be double-minded and serve two masters. God, take it all if you want. Let me read something from the book of Revelation, chapter three, to the church of Laodicea. Jesus writes, and this is what Jesus, the the letter that goes out to the church of Laodicea says this. Jesus says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would you that, I, I would rather that you be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, when you don't have the world's possessions and you are worldly poor, you have no problem understanding that. But when the riches come in, and we all have them, let's just, let's just all admit, even if you're poor in America, you're rich compared to the rest of the world. Man, we have like everything we need. Like we're just drowning in comforts and leisure our whole life is revolved around, around technology increasing our comfort and our leisure. These things are not bad, but our hearts will always want to let these things draw us away and we'll begin to put our hope in those things. Thank you, Lord, when you bring something into my life and you take that away or you remind me of how unsatisfying that is. You see, the summit perspective that God is always bringing us is that there's something he's doing. Maybe Now, this is going to sound crazy, but maybe our depression is a gift from God to remind us that there is nothing in this world that will satisfy and we need something outside of it. Why am I so depressed still? I can't get out of it. I'm trying everything to get out of this depression. Maybe that's a gift from God to be like, wow, thank you, Lord, for not allowing anything on the world to comfort me. Now all I can look to is you. Didn't we learn in Genesis that God purposely brought a curse and the curse was to remind us of our need for him? Like, it's like we won't see our need for him unless, unless he can utterly take away the ultimate satisfaction that planet earth and the flesh and the world can bring. But we do a good job amassing comfort for ourselves to try to avoid and forget the calamity that's in the world. First Timothy says this. So before, another disclaimer I'd like to make is we live in a culture where it's hard not to think about maybe things you hear from a pulpit. Pulpit, is that better, Charles? <laughs> I put a lot of emphasis on like different parts. And so pulpit was one of the words this week that the staff got to laugh with me on. So as soon as I said it, I reminded it. Pulpit, up on the stage, you can hear a lot of things that immediately you filter through a political mindset. 
Man, these things were existed way before Republican, Democrat, way before America. Like these things are true. So in no way am I trying to be political in any way. I'm trying to be biblical. This is what first Timothy says. As for the rich in the present age, as for the rich in the present stage to the church, the rich in the church in the present age, charge them, which means exhort them. It's a very strong word. We need to make sure here's the command. Charge them to not be haughty, arrogant, puffed up, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. You see the perspective scripture brings invades with honesty that kind of hurts and stings but is actually helpful. True life, true riches are found in being rich toward God. Not the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus saying, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus says, okay, let me expose your heart. Keep all the commandments. I've done that since my birth. Okay, one thing you lack, sell everything you have to the poor and follow me. And it says he goes away sad. There's a test. There's a test to reveal that someone who thought they had real faith, thought that they were a a child of Abraham was revealed in that moment. They were not. And they failed the test because at the end of the day, all of these things, I couldn't handle losing these things. So I'd rather lose Jesus than lose these things. And the scripture's coming along and saying, you're going to lose these things anyway. How do these things hurt when you lose a child? Help. Do these things help at all when, when you come to tragedy in life? None of, none of us are comforted by money and worldly riches when the real pains of life come, are we not? How do those things help in the real hard moments of life? I'm going to tell you this. Only God can help in those moments. Only God can. So what do we do? as people who have riches abounding. Well, we're gonna learn through the book of James, especially in the next few verses. We must be thankful. We thank God for everything. Everything comes from him. So we keep the perspective that everything has come from him. But in this current situation, we must boast and find a humility and be humbled by our present humiliation, which is the loss of these things losing them. Trials that come along and start to take those things away. Trials that come along and those things cannot help with, we boast in that. That word boast is the idea of like rejoice, is the idea of glory in. It's, it's a strange thing. It's like I'm going to find, it actually carries with the word pride. I'm actually going to find pride in my current earthly status as a poor person because I know my future one's great and it's coming. And this current status I now helps me see that and expect that even more. But, but, but man, I have these riches that I'm just so, I, I, just, I just know they're constantly pulling my heart away. So what am I gonna do? You know what? I'm gonna have pride when I lose these and when God brings in a trial that begins to take them away. And I'm not gonna find so, so much pride in my current status. I'm going to turn my eyes to heaven and say, that's what I, I can't wait for that day. I'm going to be generous now. I'm going to thank God for what he's given me. And I'm going to be willing to give it away if he were to ask me to do that. Do not toil, Proverbs says, to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings like flying like an eagle. 
toward heaven. The temptation for the rich brother is this. The temptation is this, to live my best life now and protect my current status. The best life is yet to come. God is going to bring for his children whatever status you find yourself in. And sometimes we may fluctuate between both, which is why we need to pay attention to the heart of both. Real faith, someone who's really experienced the good news of the gospel and has the real hope, real faith will begin to react appropriately in your heart toward the status of life that you're in. Notice that both, both are in the church, both are in the kingdom, but both need to be wise concerning what they're up against. God is inside of us who know him and he will, he will work out the work that he's begun in us and bring it to completion. Trials are the great equalizer to everyone in the church. The poor are reminded their riches await them and the rich are reminded their current materials will fade away and will always fall short of true help and satisfaction. And so the status in the world where someone may look down in shame as a Christian, they lift their eyes up and then someone maybe who's had, who's had comfort and ease their whole life begins to put their face to the ground in humility, understanding. And both are brought to an equalization. Same status where they're both looking and anticipating in humility what is to await them. Which is why then he says, verse 12, blessed is the man, not just happy, like true joy, like joy that remains through everything, regardless of what emotions you're having, it's still there, blessed, truly, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Blessed is the man. And what does it say there next? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You know what he's coming back to? He's coming back to showing the heart of real faith is a heart that loves God genuinely with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's, just not, he's not just a passport. He's not just something that they associate with. He's, he's a personal the personal God for them and they love him and they anticipate him and they're looking forward to his coming because the world as it is is not what they're trying to find their hope in. That's all of us, poor, rich, middle class, wherever status we find ourselves, that's the anticipation. And blessed is the one who remains under whatever trial that comes your way to test you, keeps the faith, endures, sees the good in it, lets God work, sees that God's growing them, see that God's weeding out of them this double-mindedness. And they grow in love towards the God who made them. Blessed, blessed, blessed. He says here, when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Remember, James is trying to expose real or fake. He's not trying to say, do this to get this. He's trying to say, is this true about you? If not, you need God to work in you. If you really are, this is true. So you can know and be confident 
that as life has gone on and you've stood the test and you come to the end of your road and you can say, Jesus has always been my savior. I never gave up on him. Life was hard, but I see he was working something greater. He's king. He is Lord. He is savior. And when my eyes awaken after I breathe my last breath, I awaken to see his beautiful face and he will accept me into his arms and I will be forever in heaven as the citizen I am, where I'm meant to be in a home that's awaiting for me that will live forever and that my existence on earth will be this tiny speck of existence in my past that I may not even barely remember because I'm so overcome by the pleasures and the joy and the glory of being in the presence of God in heaven forever. Right now, take the world, give me Jesus. Take it. God, take it. And God, the things that you bring to us, you bring to Summit Church that hurt us, man, turn our eyes to see the glory and the goodness of all of that as you are deteriorating any type of dependency on the world. God does that. And so we're going to thank him for the hardship we go through each and every day because he is keeping our hearts devoted to him. Let's pray. God, you are better than we deserve I think about the things of the earth growing strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Would you make that happen in our hearts? God, if we feel oppressed in any way, if we feel like we're, we're not finding any comfort in this life and we seem like we're always getting the short end of the stick, but God, would you help us not be, be envious of those who have things, but pity them and ask for you to open their eyes to see what we see, which is a great need for something beyond this world. And you've provided it in your only son, Jesus, whom you gave up freely on the cross to die and to raise and to rise and ascend to the right hand, who's with you now interceding. Help us to find the riches that await us in the glory of Jesus Christ. Do this for your church. All over the world, we pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Stand together.